we are making our way through the Gospel of John in these days. And we're glad you're here with us. Joining us this morning, we will be looking at the um, sort of the latter half of John chapter 2. For context, last week, we looked at the, the miracle of water into wine at the wedding of Cana. Jesus has, has been announced by John the Baptist. He has conducted this first miracle. John, the author of the Gospel of John, John the Apostle, prefers uh, the favorite, the noun he uses for miracles is not the usual word for miracle. He uses the word sign. And uh, if you were a, a, an original first century reader, the word that he uses for sign was an everyday word used uh, for the directional signage along traveling roads. It was, it was you know, this way to Jerusalem, that was, a, that was a sign to indicate that you're on track for the right destination. And John organizes this, this middle section of his gospel around a series of signs, miracles that Jesus does, things Jesus does that only Jesus could do to show that he was God and to point the way that through him we can be right with God. But <clears throat> that sign occurred at an invitation-only event. It wasn't, it wasn't secretively private, but it was, a, it was a wedding. It was not full-out public. And in these paragraphs we come to this morning, Jesus begins his public ministry. And it begins... Well, same place it's going to end. Jesus' last day of public teaching is the Tuesday after the Sunday of the triumphal entry. And on that Tuesday, which is extensively documented in the Gospels, he teaches in the temple. Here, years earlier, he begins his public ministry also in the temple. And rather like that last week, the day after the triumphal entry, on that Monday of that week, Jesus went into the temple and he cleaned out a bunch of money changing and livestock selling and other things. He does that at the beginning of his ministry as well. Some have said these are the same event. And there are similarities, but they're not the same event. The end of his ministry purging of the temple or cleansing of the temple is reported in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and placed where it belongs in the narrative. This one is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, placed where it belongs in the narrative, though only spoken of by John, who, as an early follower of Christ, was an eyewitness to this event. So uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 13. Now, rather than interrupt myself with a footnote in the very first verse, let me give you a little orientation to how geography is handled in the Gospels and also in the book of Acts. When you and I look at a, look at a map and we use the words up and down with reference to a map, the way we use language in our culture and the way we relate to directions, when we say up on a map, we mean north. When we say down, we mean south. So if you were gonna give somebody directions to Sarasota, you'd say go up I-75 and you'll come to Sarasota. Give them directions to Naples, you'd say go down I-75 and you come to Naples. We up and down. 
The New Testament doesn't do it that way. In the, the New Testament, consistently, up means toward Jerusalem. No matter what compass direction that is. To travel toward Jerusalem is to go up. To travel away from Jerusalem is to go down, no matter what direction. The miracle of water into wine happened at Cana of Galilee. That's north of Jerusalem. In, in verse 12, we see Jesus briefly pays a visit to Capernaum. That's north of Jerusalem. And yet in verse 13, he goes up to Jerusalem. And if you look for that to mean north, your maps will confuse you. So that was free, and I could have put that in the Beyond the Notes podcast this week, but generally speaking, I lack restraint and wanted to put it here. So find other interesting stuff for the podcast. All right, here we go. Uh, John chapter two, beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And that's a quote of Psalm 69, verse nine. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus begins his public ministry. Roman numeral one, at at the very beginning, and again, we're gonna see these three paragraphs are gonna correspond to the three points of our message. These These are foundation truths that Jesus is setting in place. All of the themes and ideas of these will echo down the ministry of Jesus and in fact, the rest of the New Testament, in fact, to our day. Roman numeral one, Jesus protects his worship. Jesus protects his worship. The temple is no more. The temple where these events took place was leveled by the Roman Empire in the year 70 AD. The 21st century church building is not the temple. It does not stand in the place of the temple. The temple had been ordained by God for the worship of his people in the Old Testament era in Jerusalem. But the temple system was shown to have fulfilled its purpose when the day Jesus died on the cross, he tore down the curtain around the holiest of the places in the temple. 
Our gathering here is what makes this a holy place. This is just a building. Now we should respect it. God has given us a marvelous resource here, but it's not the temple. What Jesus is here moving in defense of is not an architectural expression. It's the gathered worship of his people. Letter A, sacrifice should lead to sanctification. The, the deliberate sacrifice of God's people is part of his means for making us like himself. In the, in the temple system, these, uh, these, these Jewish followers of the living God would, would come, oh, if you could just make it to Jerusalem for Passover. Every Jew in the world wanted to be in Jerusalem at Passover. You had to make it at least once or twice in a lifetime. If you could make it every year, you would. And, and you wanted to participate in the, in the sacrifices of Passover at the temple. Oh, what an experience. But many of them were traveling from a great distance. And if you went out to your own little flock or you went out to your own little herd and you, and you picked the perfect animal for your sacrifice and off you went to Jerusalem walking all those miles and your sacrificial animal that was perfect when you left home, well, it, it could be damaged on the way, marred in some way so that when you show up at the temple, it wasn't acceptable for your sacrifice. So, we set up a stockyard at the temple. We set up a livestock sale. And you don't have to worry about hauling some animal far from your home. You don't have to worry. We've got you covered right here with pre-sanctioned temple sacrifice animals for your convenience. Because after all, sacrifice is supposed to be mostly about convenience. scares me how easily I could sell that idea. That idea is horrible and evil. Suppose that little family found that little lamb and they had to guard it, protect it, treasure it, keep it safe until they sacrificed it at the end of their journey. How much more would the truth be driven home that sacrifice is a costly thing and the shedding of blood matters. How much more would that family be being taught to treasure the once for all sacrifice of Messiah who was coming? And you and I in our era must never let convenience be the prime motivator of our service to our king. Sacrifice is supposed to make us more like Jesus. And we don't sacrifice in anticipation of the cross, like in the temple system, though they missed it by and large. We sacrifice in remembrance of the cross and in gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. Or we can do what's convenient. 
In addition to convenience taking the place of, of sacrifice, letter B on your outline, in, 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 in authentic worship, compassion for the outsider should be highly valued. It's, it matters a lot that people who don't know the Lord yet come around to, to observe our worship, to hear the word of God, to listen to the sound of our praise. That truth is extraordinarily well expressed in the way God designed his temple. I have a picture I want to show you. Uh, this is a picture of, uh, I think, the best model there is in all the world of what the temple looked like at the time of Christ. And so I bet they've got that picture ready to go. There it is. All right. This is the, the model of Jerusalem right before Jerusalem fell to the Romans in the late AD 60s, around AD 70. And this big building you see is the temple. Now, if you look right in the center of that massive paved area, that, that sort of inner area, um, that very tall building is a place in the temple where only the priests were allowed to go, and only certain priests on certain days. Right in front of that is, is a court where only Jewish men were allowed to go. And then, if you look in front of that, there's a court where only Jews are allowed to go. But that big, flat area, that massive, multi-acre, flat space that's there, that was called the court of the Gentiles. Stay with me. Anybody was allowed to go there. That was designed so that people who didn't know God yet could come near to where the worship of God was going on, hear the singing of God's people, hear the praise, hear the prayers, hear the word of God being read by the priests as they experienced a God they did not yet know. That's not what Jesus encountered. Instead of the sounds of prayer and praise in the outer court that day, it's livestock noises. Maws and grunts and whatever else oxes and sheep do when they're being noisy. Instead of the gentle smell of incense coming from the temple furniture in the inner part of the temple drifting out across that outer court, it smelled like a barnyard. And instead of the gathering of a contemplative and worshipful people to celebrate what God was doing, it was a sheer stockyard. The outsider wouldn't feel welcome. The outsider would feel like he's walked into a combination flea market and meat market. There was no compassion for the outsider. And oh, how easily you and I can fall into that as we um, fail to consider in our worship, in our welcome, 
and how we treat. You know what? I love coming to church and talking to people that I already know well. That's very comfortable. I bet you do too. If you've come in this morning and you don't already know a few people here well, I pray that you have encountered a warm welcome because to our Lord, compassion for the outsider should be highly valued. Let her see on your outline, practical approaches can lead to corruption. See, selling the livestock at the temple made perfect sense. It was an oh-so-practical solution to a quite real problem. And while we're at it, these people coming from these other places, we, we can't let them buy their livestock with, you know, corrupt outsider money. Ew. We have to let them change their money into, well, holy temple money at an exchange rate we determine. It's just practical. And we can't expect them to have traveled with their animals from a distance. No, it's much more practical for us to have the animals right here. Look, I'm not saying that all practical thinking, that all pragmatic thinking is necessarily evil. There's a whole lot of, of, of practicality and pragmatism in our gatherings. Let me state for the record, for example, I am quite fond of air conditioning. Anybody with me? I kind of like the stuff. And the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. It's a modern day pragmatic thing. And uh, by the time I'm done in a few minutes, I will have preached pretty much this same message times three. And while I'm confident that I can make myself heard in this worship center without wearing this thing and having it talk to all this marvelous technology in the room, I think if I did it times three, I'm gonna, I'm gonna strip a gear at some point. And I'm so thankful that with this stuff, I can talk to you. I don't even converse this softly. And I can talk like this and y'all can hear me all over the room. And that's kind of cool. Hmm. So it's not that practical solutions are necessarily evil. But when practical solutions are driving the design of our worship, you can bet our Lord is over in the corner braiding his whip. When practical considerations say, you don't need to downplay the gospel, it's messy. You don't need to preach verse by verse through books. Somebody might find that boring. I remember encountering in seminary a, 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 an academic discipline that was born in the United States in the late 50s, an academic discipline called church growth as an academic discipline. A church growth movement began in the late 50s with the publication of a couple of books. And it doesn't matter who the books were written by or who they are. I could name them, but most of you wouldn't know who I'm talking about. The thesis of the church growth movement is sociology and methodology are the important things to growing your church. 
that if you'll just pay attention to the sociology of your church body and invoke the right mechanical methodology in how you approach people, you can, you can make your church grow bigger. Don't, don't worry so much about the particulars of theology. Don't worry so much about an extraordinary emphasis on the gospel. Just do the right things to be a user-friendly church. A seeker-sensitive church. You know what's horrible about that? What's horrible about that is that it works. It just pushes the gospel off to the side. But ooh, it'll draw a crowd. You can draw a crowd with sociology and methodology. And Jesus stands in the corner and braids his whip and awaits the vindication of his gospel. Of course, the temple authorities were making bank over all this system and anyway. Roman numeral two. Jesus predicts his resurrection. Verse 18, they come to him and they say, what, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, how do you have permission to do what you just did? Now, it's fascinating to me, and it's not spelled out in the previous paragraph, but the temple had a security force. The temple had both the Jewish temple police and the Roman occupying army was headquartered right there in a building actually built upon the corner of the temple. But one guy is able to clean the whole thing out. And by the way, when you see Jesus braiding that whip, don't see Jesus behaving in an excessively violent way. See Jesus showing remarkable restraint. He braided that whip, and by all indications, he used it, and he used it intentionally. But you know what he did not do? He didn't open up the earth and have it swallow a lot of them. He didn't call down fire or lightning or a tidal wave in the middle of the desert, all of which he could easily have done because he's God. Jesus braiding a whip is not a sign of, well, I just can't believe Jesus was so excessively violent. He wasn't. He was excessively restrained. He limited himself to one whip and one guy and he cleaned out those acres of filth. And then they ask him, how do you get to do that? I don't know, but I just did it. But that wasn't the answer that he gave. He said, look forward, I've got something even bigger to show you. Destroy this in three days, I'll raise it back up. And they thought he meant their building. He didn't, he was talking about his own resurrection. But the deal is, letter A, they had a lack of understanding. Jesus is going to say of these same people time and again, they have eyes, but they do not see. Ears, but they do not hear. They, they just don't understand and let her be on your outline. They have a commitment to their unbelief. They have a commitment to their unbelief. I've said it before. Unbelief is not mostly an intellectual problem. Now, I don't mean to say that if... If you've got intellectual questions and issues with Christianity, that those don't matter, they do, ask them. Get your questions. Christianity's been around for 2,000 years. The intellectual case for Christianity has been made. The facts of the ministry of Jesus are well established. 
The body of literature that comprises our New Testament is the most well-attested body of literature in all of ancient history. It stands up. The problem, however, is not intellectualism. The problem is love of sin. The moment you believe the truth about Jesus, you've got to tumble into the truth about your own sin and its own consequences and your need to repent. These guys had a commitment to unbelief. In fact, years later in Jerusalem, the week before he went to the cross, John chapter 12, verse 37, Jesus would say about some of these same people, or the word of God says about some of these same people in John chapter 12, verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, by the end of his ministry, he's done miracle after miracle after miracle. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They're not going to. So many are not going to because of their love for their sin. But the disciples believed. Verse, verse 22, I put this in your notes as just a side note. Note the importance of the word of God. When Jesus had been raised from the dead, the word of God says, they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. There's a, there's a, a truth that arises from the way that God has worded that for us in his word. Even those disciples who literally spent those years experiencing the ministry of Jesus from the front row understood it because they understood the scriptures. For them, the Old Testament, the New Testament was not yet in existence. But they understood the ministry of Jesus because they understood the scriptures even as they experienced it. Important, important truth. You can interpret the scriptures in light of your experience. In other words, you can say, well, I know what the Bible means because I know what happened to me and I know what I've seen and I know what I think. Therefore, I know how to understand the Bible. That will lead you to confusion and turmoil and misunderstanding God. We do not impose our experiences on the scripture. We interpret the scripture Pardon me, we interpret our experiences in light of the scripture. Don't, don't think your experiences are there for you to interpret the Bible. The Bible is there for you to understand your experiences. That's important. You'll never, you won't understand what's happening to you until you understand it in light of God's word. As these disciples Eyewitnesses to the resurrection understood the resurrection because they knew the scriptures. All right, Jesus predicts his resurrection. And by the way, the resurrection stands to this day as the proof of Jesus Christ's death on the cross for our sin, his claims to be the Savior, and his eternal life toward which he leads us. You can have all the philosophical, religious discussions you want to have but you've got to reckon with the resurrection of Christ when it's all said and done, that the professionally executed Jesus of Nazareth <clears throat> did not stay dead. Amen indeed. All right, Jesus 
protects his worship and predicts his resurrection. And third, Jesus previews false belief. Verses 23 through 25, I think, are, are, are a, a foundational passage for understanding an important New Testament teaching. This idea of false belief, what do I mean? If you've got a Bible you can mark in with, with either a highlighter digitally or a pen, if you're uh, analog with a paper Bible, mark, mark the word believe in verse 23. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Keep reading. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Mark that word, entrust. Believe in verse 23 and entrust in verse 24. Now, I don't know why the translators have to get sometimes get cute. This is a case where the translators have gotten cute. Because those two words, believe in verse 23 and entrust in verse 24, are exactly the same word. They're the same word. What John is doing is saying, oh yeah, they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in their belief. <laughs> it wasn't real. It, wasn't, it was spurious. They, they acknowledged something amazing was going on, but there was something missing. At least two things on your outline, I've asked the question, what was missing? Remember, Jesus' favorite one-word invitation was the word follow. The rest of the New Testament, the one-word summation is often repent. We follow Jesus having repented of our sin. And until we do that, we can believe anything in the world. They believed. You say, Brother Russell, what, is, what does that, illustrate that for me. How does that play out? What does that look like? Well, all right, let me try this. I believe that if I would commit to run five miles a day every day for the next six months, I would become a lean, mean running machine. I absolutely believe that. And I ain't gonna do it. I got no plans to do it. I've got no need to do it. I'm not remotely interested in doing it. I believe it would work. I'm just not interested. That's what's being described in John chapter two, verse 23. Well, they believe, but they didn't follow. They didn't repent. They got it, but they didn't embrace Jesus as Savior. What was their motive? Well, we, we see it in the text. When they saw the signs he was doing, apparently after the water into wine, the sign that, that John reports so thoroughly, while he's in Jerusalem here at the Passover, apparently he's doing other miracles as well. Nicodemus is gonna comment on those in the passage we'll look at next week that Jesus, you know, we know you must come from God because no one would do the signs you're doing any other way. They were interested, therefore, in at least two things. They were interested in sensationalism. Whoa, this Jesus guy can put on a show. And they were interested in self-interest. All I know is that my Aunt Doris was deaf and now she's not deaf anymore. Go, Jesus. And if you have an Aunt Doris who's deaf, I don't know it and I'm not picking on you. The diagnostic indicator. And by the way, this same author, the Apostle John, his next book he's gonna write is 1 John. 
And that whole book is about the diagnostic indicators between authentic and false faith. The quickest way to say it is this. False faith is in it for itself. False faith is following Jesus for my purposes. Authentic faith follows him for his agenda and his purposes. And it changes me. Where there is a new birth, there is new life. If there is new life, there's been a new birth. These guys were an enthusiastic audience to a degree, but they weren't followers of Christ. Early in his ministry, at the very beginning, Jesus says, you know what, you're gonna worship me on my terms, not convenience, not pragmatism. You're gonna worship me on my terms and you're gonna experience life because I'm going to lead you to it eternally, also on my terms. You're gonna kill me, I'm gonna rise again. And then I'm gonna change you. I'm gonna transform you. When you throw your life onto me, turning from your sin and trusting me by faith, I'm gonna rewire you. I'm gonna make you a new creature. Things that used to matter a lot aren't going to matter as much. Things that used to not matter at all are going to matter a lot. That's just the beginning. And those were the foundation stones for his ongoing ministry. All great themes that are going to be much, much more fully developed as we go through the study of John, let alone the entirety of the New Testament. If you've never come to faith in Christ... His death on the cross and his resurrection to live forever have opened a door for everybody who will turn from their sin and trust him by faith. You can take him at his word. You can believe what he has said in the Bible. Not your experience interpreting the Bible, the Bible telling you about your experience. Try this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If you've never come to faith in Christ, now would be good. Yesterday, irretrievably gone. Tomorrow, a risky venture. Today, this moment, a sure thing. If you've never turned from your sin and come to Jesus, you can do that right where you are. Just cry out to him, Lord, I love you more than I love my sin, and I don't even know all that it entails, but I throw myself on you, and I trust you completely. If you want to talk to somebody about that, I'm not going to hurry to leave, and there will be other elders and members of our church that will be around. You have no problem finding somebody you can talk to about Jesus. If you're here and you're a believer, when you challenge people to come to Christ, and I hope that's part of what you do, be very careful with, with how you use the word believe in those conversations. 
Because we're not trying to convince someone of an intellectual point when we tell somebody about Jesus. We're trying to convince them of their need for a savior who will be their Lord.